Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, very familiar text. I'll go ahead and read all of verses 1 through 12, which is our text for this morning. And then we'll walk through it a little bit in a little bit. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, so it has been written by the prophet. O you, o, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, for the Christmas season this year, we've been looking at what we've called Songs of Emmanuel. Some of the great Christian hymns we traditionally sing, but really of infinitely more importance, the the scripture text behind those hymns, which inspired the hymns. And written in 1857, a favorite hymn of children and based in one of the most famous stories in the Gospels that we just read here just now, pertaining to the birth of Christ is We Three Kings of Orient Are. We just got to sing that. It tells this story here of the wise men traveling from the east to see Jesus. In the hymn, they're said to be kings of the Orient. Now, when the hymn was written there in the mid-1850s, this reflected the popular belief still held today that these men were from exotic, faraway places such as Persia or Babylonia or India. And so this morning, the title of my message is after the hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are. But the subtitle of my message is, Or Are We? There are several popular myths associated with the wise men. Here's a few. One myth is that they worshiped Jesus the night he was born. Actually, the text of Matthew 2 never says that. And in fact, King Herod, in his attempt to be rid of the king of the Jews, commanded that infants two years old and younger be killed. So they were not there that night. Another myth is that the star of Bethlehem hovered over the manger for all to see the night Jesus was born. Well, Scripture never says that, and it never says that anyone but the wise men could see the star. And by the way, it's not called the star of Bethlehem. It's more accurately accurately referred to as the star of Christ. And then, of course, the most famous myth, which we sing every Christmas, is that there were three wise men. 
text never says that. It says there were three gifts. It never says how many men. Now, the interesting thing about this story is that it just seems to kind of parachute into the Bible out of nowhere. The, these mysterious men appearing simply from the east. These are Gentiles who come and give extravagant treasures to Jesus Christ. They treated him like a king. They worshipped him as God. And they are immortalized really as examples of what all men should do with Jesus. They fell down before him in worship and adoration. But nothing in scripture is just dropped out of the sky for no apparent reason. This is not random. In fact, this morning I'd like to examine this story in light of redemptive history. In light of God's dealings with his people really going all the way back to Abraham and the implications for the future as well. But we'll kind of work our way toward all of that. Just to organize our thoughts this morning, I just want to ask you four questions, and then we'll answer those questions. Here are the four questions. What happened? Where were the wise men from? Who were the wise men? And why are they important? So we'll do what, where, who, and why. First of all, what happened? Well, let's just briefly walk through the text, and I'll I'll point out a few interesting notes here. A few months had passed since the birth of Jesus, and Mary and Joseph are still staying in Bethlehem. They're about five miles south of of Jerusalem. Baby Jesus has already now been circumcised. Mary has completed her time of purification according to the law, and the little family is now staying in a house. Now, because the wise men had not yet come, the family is still poor. How do we know this? Well, they offered the prescribed purification sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons in Luke 2.24. That was what humble families with little means did. The normal sacrifice for the birth of a firstborn son was a lamb, a much more extravagant gift. And so they offered the sacrifice of a poor family. And so verse 1 then tells us the bigger political picture. In the days of Herod the king... These wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. They inquired of Herod in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So this news troubled Herod. It bothered him. It agitated him and all of Jerusalem. Now, we can guess why this would trouble Herod. Herod is the king of the Jews. Anyone else making that claim is directly challenging his right to rule. But why would this trouble Jerusalem? Why would the whole city be agitated by the wise men coming? Well, to understand that, we have to understand Herod. There are several Herods in the Bible. This is Herod the Great. Julius Caesar had appointed his father to be governor of Judea during the Roman occupation. And his father managed to have his son Herod appointed as the governor of Galilee, which was one of the provinces to the north. So during this time, though, right when Herod the Great was being appointed, Jewish rebels fighting independence from Rome were making raids into Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod crushed them mercilessly. In fact, when the Parthians invaded Palestine, Israel, Herod had to run to Egypt, but he went to Rome, and he made a deal. He made a deal with Octavian and Mark Antony. He said, make me the sole king of all the Jews and I'll crush this rebellion. I'll crush the invaders. And that's exactly what happened. 
So from about 37 BC onward, Herod the Great was now the king of the Jews. And here's an irony for you. He was an Idumean, an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. He was clever. He was smart. He was upward thinking. He was political. And so he married a high-ranking Jewish woman to help connect with the people. He helped the Jews through economic hardship. He even funded a massive remodeling project for the temple in Jerusalem. But no one was going to threaten his right to rule. He eventually had his own wife, two of his brothers-in-law, his mother-in-law, and two of his own sons murdered because he suspected them of treason. And five days before he died, he had a third son executed as well. In fact, when Jesus was about a toddler, right before Herod's death, Herod had all the most important citizens in Jerusalem arrested imprisoned and gave orders that the minute he died, all of them were to be executed. What was his reason? No one was going to mourn his death, and so he would guarantee that there would be mourning all over Jerusalem, looking like they were mourning him. And so now, in our text in Matthew 2, at about the age of 70, Herod gets a visit from the wise men in the east, and these wise men are saying, the true king of the Jews has been born. So why would that trouble Herod? Because he lived for power and he would not give it up. But why would this trouble Jerusalem? Why would the whole city care? Well, because when Herod gets mad, blood is spilled. When he gets mad, heads are going to roll. Herod consulted then with all the chief priests and the scribes, those who were experts in Old Testament prophecy to find out where the Messiah, the Christ, was supposed to be born In verses 4 through 6, they rightly answered him from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in Bethlehem. And by the way, did you notice as we read this text, how seemingly indifferent these unbelieving chief priests and scribes, the official religious leaders of Israel, how indifferent they were to the possibility that their Messiah had come? It was like somebody asking directions to the nearest gas station. No, it's turn left and go that way. And so Herod gets information from the indifferent chief priests and scribes that Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod brought the wise men back and he lied to them. In verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. What did he want to do? In fact, he wanted to murder Jesus Christ. But at the time, the wise men don't know that, so they go on their way. The star leads them to the house that Jesus is staying in. Now, the star has shown in the east where they came from, but the text doesn't explicitly say here that they followed the star. The fact that they had to inquire of Herod where the Messiah would be born tells us that the star got them going But now the star reappears and brought them not only to Bethlehem, but to the exact house where Jesus was several months now after his birth. And how did they respond to the God-given revelation of Christ? Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. All their longing was over. All their searching was over. They had no farther to go. The the Messiah they had heard of in the shadows of prophecies was now presented in the brilliance of the glory of God resting over the house. 
in which the baby king of the Jews rested in his mother's arms. And listen, if we could be very clear about this, this wasn't the wise men receiving Christ. This was Christ receiving the wise men. And they rejoiced in great joy. Verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What is this? Falling down and worshipping him, that is the act of repentant men. That's the act of men who know that Christ is worthy and that they are not. Men who understand that the worth and the value and the merit of Jesus Christ was worth traveling these many months and these many miles for the privilege of humiliating themselves in the dirt in the presence of the Savior. Why would they do this? Well, very simply because for all the wealth and knowledge and prestige that they had, the one thing they could not do for themselves was to atone for their own sin. They needed a Savior. And so they opened their treasures. It's, it's a plural in Greek. Treasure boxes or trunks are just generally something which you place treasures. If you see Christmas cards with pictures of the quote-unquote three wise men, what are they usually carrying? Usually a, a little tiny box, right? Well, that's not what this is. This is a trunk. This is something that it took men to drag in. And now they give these famous gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, Scripture is fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit made sure we knew the exact gifts that were being given. In the ancient Near East, and especially from the wise men, gifts were not given randomly. They weren't given haphazardly. They didn't just drive by Target and buy gift cards on the way there with no thought. These gifts had meaning, they had purpose, they had significance, and they showed their accurate view of Jesus Christ. These gifts, first of all, acknowledged his status as king. He's a king. They gave gold. Gold has universally been a symbol of royalty and rulership. A thousand years earlier, the queen of Sheba came to give honor and tribute to King Solomon and brought 1 Kings 10 spices and very much gold, unquote. And so they acknowledged him as a king. They secondly acknowledged his worth as God. They acknowledged his worth as God, his deity. They gave frankincense. This is a, a spice that is extracted and made into an oil that was costly, and it was used only on the most special of occasions. It has a scent sort of like pine and honey and lemon all put together, and it is considered exotic and amazing and very, very expensive. They acknowledged his status as king, they acknowledged his worth, and they acknowledged his humility. And they gave him myrrh. Myrrh was less expensive than frankincense, but still valuable, but it was considered really the common man's perfume or spice Myrrh would be given to Jesus just two more times. Myrrh was given as an anesthetic in Mark chapter 15. It was offered to Jesus right before his crucifixion, but he refused it so as to fully experience the agony of suffering for our sin without any numbing, without any relief, without any help. And then myrrh was given to Jesus one last time. His body was wrapped in burial clothes, saturated in myrrh and other spices. 
Each time myrrh is given to Jesus, it's associated with his pain and with his death. Now, we don't know if the wise men were fully aware of the fact that Jesus would grow up to die and be the sacrifice for their sins, but they did at some level understand and acknowledge his humility. After all, Jesus is God who came to earth as an infant. Now, before we leave this part of our message, the what happened part, we should mention the star. The star of Christ has not only been the subject of discussion by theologians, but probably even more so by astronomers. Some think it was a meteor, others think it was a comet, still others think it was a particularly bright planet or a literal star, others think it was a lineup of planets like Jupiter and Saturn, some think it was a nova, which is an explosion on a star, some think it was a supernova, an explosion of a star. You know, people could save so much time if they just read the Bible. Verse 9 doesn't fit any of those things. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It's moving. So what is the star? Well, a very strong case can be made, and I've made this case in the past, that the star is actually a group of angels leading the wise men. There's excellent evidence for this. But I think there's better evidence that the star of Christ is very simply the glory of God manifested as light. The same manifestation of God's glory which appeared to Israel as a pillar of fire by night when he led them through the wilderness to Canaan 1,500 years earlier. This is extremely powerful because the glory of God resting over Bethlehem is massive in significance. 600 years earlier, just before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians because of century after century of disobedience by the Jews, The prophet Ezekiel prophesied that something terrible, something unspeakable would happen in Jerusalem. More terrible than invasion, more terrible than death, more terrible than destruction. God would leave. God would leave them. Ezekiel 10 records the glory of God rising visibly from the temple in Jerusalem in what appeared to Ezekiel as a massive heavenly chariot and departing through the eastern gate. 600 years earlier, the glory of God left Israel, and now the glory of God has returned to Israel in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's what happened. Let's consider a second question. Where were the wise men from? Where were they from? Why would they as Gentiles be so interested in the king of the Jews? Not just interested, but they're worshipers for all intents and purposes. They're acting like they've found the very purpose of their lives. This is the culmination of what they've been searching for their entire life. Now, the predominant view of where the wise men were from has a lot of support, both in history and in the great possibility that they were from a tradition influenced greatly by the prophet Daniel, going all the way back since six centuries to Babylon, which would have then been taken over by Persia, In Daniel's time, that view has a lot of merit to it, and I've preached that view as very likely. These wise men could have been priests or astrologers from Persia, perhaps Chaldean astrologers from Mesopotamia, what used to be Babylonia. And so the hymn writer says they're from the Orient, which is what that area would have been called. And there's good reasons for this view that they were either Persian or Babylonian, Chaldean. 
few reasons you have in this text the, the many uses of the word magi. In the ESV, it's translated wise men, but it, magi comes from the Greek word magos, plural magoi. And this is a term extremely strongly associated with the pagan priest class of the Persians, astrologers, fortune tellers, and so forth. In fact, ancient historians Pliny and Tacitus associated magi with sorcery. We get our English word magic or magician from this. And so you have the word magi used in Greek multiple times in chapter 2. You also have the highlight of astronomy in this account. You have the star of Christ. The magi are traditionally associated very strongly with the study of astronomy. And so seeing the star of Bethlehem was, hey, that's right up our alley. We can do that. And then you have the strong testimony of some of the early church fathers. Clement of Alexandria, John Chrysostom, uh, Cyril of Jerusalem believed that the Magi came from Persia. Jerome and Augustine believed them to be astrologers from Babylon, all fitting the idea of coming from what our hymn says, the Orient. Now, based on this predominant view, many traditions have developed. Almost all of them portray these men as three kings from various parts of the world, the most famous tradition comes from Armenia, that they are named Balthazar, king of Arabia, Gaspar, king of India, and Melchior, king of Persia. So three different kings all coming together. But if you put all the known traditions together from ancient sources, there are at least 30 different names from multiple ethnic groups, including Persians, Indians, Parthians, Assyrians, Medes, and many, many others. So the church's view historically has been that these men are from Persia or from Babylon. Other traditions have them coming from various parts of the world. But there is one view that I think presents the strongest actual evidence. I want to do a little investigation with you. And this will, I promise, it will connect to the redemptive purpose of the story of the wise men. They are not just dropped randomly into the story of Scripture. They fit into the whole story. What is that view? Well, that is the view that the Magi were from Arabia. They were from Arabia, the area on the other side of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea from Israel. It's very simple. Here's a simple map you can draw. Here's Israel going up and down, and over here is Arabia, right next door. That is, I believe, the best view. And I want to give you five clues to this. The first clue we get returning to the term Magi. Most of the ways magi has been used in history is negative from a biblical standpoint. They're fortune tellers, they're sorcerers, they're magicians, they're, they dabble in the occultic arts, in astrology. But magi has also been used in a neutral sense as someone simply seeking that which is wise, seeking that which is supernatural, seeking that which is of God. Someone seeking spiritual wisdom, therefore they're called the wise men. For example, in the days of King Nebuchadnezzar, the faithful Jew Daniel was appointed chief of the what? The Magi. Now, obviously, the term used here in Matthew cannot be speaking of them as astrologers, as fortune tellers. They're not any of those things. These are monotheistic worshipers of God who have come to give all allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. The term has also been used to refer to people other than Persians or Babylonians. So the term Magi alone is open to simply being faithful, spiritual men seeking the wisdom of God. There's a second clue. 
We have the testimony of other early church fathers. In A.D. 55, Justin Martyr wrote his work, Dialogue with Trypho, and he said nine times in this work that the Magi were from Arabia. Now, Justin was born at about 100 A.D. in Samaria, north of Israel. He's literally the next generation after the apostles. Around 208 A.D., in Carthage, North Africa, the famous Christian theologian Tertullian wrote in his famous work against Marcion, he said that the Magi were kings from Arabia. He specifically says the east means Arabia. He specifically mentions that Arabia, by the way, was most noted for and economically strengthened by their trade in gold and frankincense and myrrh. And by the way, Tertullian was the first known teacher to write that the Magi were kings. He also asserts, by the way, that at the second coming, Christ will again receive the wealth of Arabia in a time of peace and prosperity. And then you have a guy by the name of Clement. Clement of Rome in AD 96, he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth and he identified, quote, the regions of the east, unquote, as the country of Arabia, rich in frankincense and myrrh. I'll give you a third clue from geography. The Magi are simply said to be from the east. In the Old Testament, East is a specific geographic reference to Arabia. Old Testament times and New Testament times. Judges 6, Judges 7, Judges 8, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 25. Whenever you say East, you're saying Arabia. Now, for us as Western cultured Christians in the Bible, when we read the East, how have we been brought up to think? Babylon, Persia, India. Because we all know the Middle East geography so very well, don't we? But those living in Israel in biblical times, going to Babylon, Persia, or India, that meant going north, not east. And anyone coming to the land of Israel from those countries entered from the north across the Fertile Crescent. And so Babylon and Persia were considered the land of the north. For example, the Bible speaks of the Assyrians and the Babylonians as being the people of the north. Isaiah 14, Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah 6, Zephaniah 2, Zechariah 2, and many others. It's always north. Now, there is one little exception. Three times in Isaiah 41 and 46, Cyrus of Persia is said to be from the east. But it's not a geographic designation. The word translated east is not the normal geographic word used in the Old Testament. Instead, it's, it's just a general word that means in front of or the rising of the sun. In other words, generally that way. The technical word for east, not one time, is ever used in the Old Testament to refer to Persia or Babylon, but rather the Arabian desert east of Israel. By the way, Isaiah 41, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, Persia is north. So it's much more accurate, infinitely more accurate, to say that the east is the region of Arabia, due east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. Let me give you a fourth clue. The gifts of the Magi. In the ancient Near East, as early as the 5th century B.C., Arabia was known as the country that specialized in producing spices, especially frankincense and myrrh. And in fact, the ancient historians Herodotus and Pliny both separately, unknown to each other, wrote 
that Southern Arabia was the only country in all of the ancient Near East which produced frankincense and myrrh. The history of Arabia being the center of spice production is extensive. In fact, the ancient Greek historian Diodorus, who died just 30 years before the time of Christ, he witnessed that the kingdom of Sheba, in particular in Arabia, became the wealthiest kingdom in the ancient world because the spice trade to the ancient world was what oil is to us today. By the way, Diodorus also witnessed that Arabia had another plentiful resource. He wrote this, quote, There is also mined in Arabia the gold called fireless, which is not smelted from ores as is done among other peoples, but is dug directly from the earth, and it is found in nuggets about the size of chestnuts. In other words, if you live in Arabia, dig in your backyard, you're going to get lucky. Let me give you one more clue. God's protection of his redemptive plan. God's protection of his redemptive plan, specifically God's use of the partner countries, interestingly, of Egypt and Arabia. Listen carefully. Joseph, threatened by his brothers with death, what happened instead? He was sold by Arabian spice traders to go to which country? To Egypt. Saved his life. And it prepared him for his providential rise to power in which he then was God's tool to save the people of Israel. Fast forward a few hundred years. Moses' life was threatened twice. As an infant, he was rescued by a princess of Egypt. And as an adult, he was rescued by fleeing to Arabia. Kings, wise men from Arabia came and gave to Jesus the wealth of their land. Even a small amount of gold, a small amount of frankincense and myrrh would have been enough to live on for a very, very long time. And what happened when the wise men left? Look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And how amazing that when they ran, they were carrying enough money to live on basically indefinitely. God using to protect his providential plan of salvation, Egypt and Arabia. Now, right now you might be saying, who cares? What is the point of geography? Well, that gives us our third question. Who were the wise men? Who were the wise men? Was there a group of people living in Arabia who had a vested interest in seeing the Messiah of Israel come and who would give him incredible great wealth and who would worship him? And if so, why are they included in Scripture? Remembering that God never just drops random stories in the text with no connection and no bearing from Genesis through Revelation on his plan of redemption. Epiphanius the 4th century bishop of Salamis in Cyprus, he had a theory, and it is the theory that I think surpasses all of the others. Now, if you were with us when I preached through Genesis a few months ago as part of our Pentateuch series, this is going to be familiar to you. For the sake of time, I need to walk through this briefly and suggest maybe you note some references. I can't have you turn to all of them. There's too many. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abram. God has chosen this man to be his means of effecting his redemption 
his redemptive plan from sin on the earth. And he promises to Abram, soon to be renamed Abraham, he will make him into a great nation. His name will be great. And in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I've taught this many times before. Obviously, the nation is Israel. All the families of the earth are blessed in that it's through Israel that that Christ comes and will live a perfect sinless life and die on the cross to pay for our sins and for all those who would believe on him. But then you move to Genesis 17 and God gets more specific with Abram, with Abraham. Abraham will be the father of a multitude of nations and kings will come from Abraham. The land of Israel will be given to a, the specific great nation for all time. Chapter 17, verse 8 says that. The land belongs to Israel. Later in chapter 17, though, God promises that this great nation will come through a singular son, one boy, to be born through Abraham. This would be Isaac, of course. Isaac would be the son of blessing, the son of promise. And, of course, through Isaac came Jacob, and through Jacob came the nation of Israel. But then you get even more information in Genesis 22 that in the offspring, the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The Apostle Paul commented on this very promise in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And so the singular seed is Isaac, ultimately represented by the true seed, Jesus Christ. Well, eventually, Isaac's mother, Abraham's beloved Sarah, died. Genesis 25 records what happened next. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Remember Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. And all these, all these were the children of Keturah. Now you recall that before Isaac was born, Abraham had a plan. He took matters into his own hands to try to speed God's plan along. And he had a son through his wife's servant. His name was Ishmael. What happened to Ishmael? You remember that to avoid massive family conflict, Abraham had to send Ishmael and his mother away as recorded in Genesis 21. And in fact, in chapter 25, Ishmael's genealogy is listed as well with his sons. But back to the sons of Keturah. These were not the sons of promise. They were not the one son Isaac through whom the one chosen nation would come But Abraham had six more boys, and he loved them. Zimram, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And they had sons, including Sheba, and Dedan, and others. But what did Abraham have to do to keep Isaac, the sole heir of God's promises to Abraham, to keep a potential war from happening in the generations to come? Genesis 25, beginning of verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, where? Eastward to the east country. 
The sons of his concubines refers to Hagar and probably Keturah had been a servant of Sarah as well. So why did he send them away? They couldn't be a threat to Isaac, the promised son, the legal firstborn of Abraham's household. And so to keep family peace, the family had to be separated. Entire nations were forming from this family and Abraham had to take steps. And so we have what really is a very sad, sad family situation. God promised Abraham a son through whom would come the promised nation of Israel, through whom the world would come to know God. But Abraham and Sarah couldn't be patient, so they had Ishmael through Hagar. Abraham even asking God to make Ishmael the promised son, but God wouldn't do it. And then after his beloved Sarah died, Abraham married again, having six more sons through Keturah. And because Isaac was the promised son, Abraham had to send them away. He sent away Ishmael. He sent away the sons of Keturah. I don't think you can remove the emotion from this. I don't think you can just glibly say, oh, Abraham had seven boys that he sent away. He sent them away, the text says, with gifts, meaning enough to provide for them for the rest of their lives. He made them wealthy. He gave them a start in life. And then he would never see them again. I can only imagine that there was likely weeping in Abraham's tent for many months. And where were the sons of Keturah sent? Where did they settle? Eastward to the east country in Arabia. Now remember, God promised that not only would a great and chosen nation come from him, but that all nations of the world would be blessed. It's always been God's plan to offer salvation from sin to Gentiles, to those not descended from Abraham. That includes us. What happened to the sent away sons of Abraham, to the people descended from the sons of Keturah? So was there a group of people living in Arabia who had a vested interest in seeing the offspring, the seed, the Messiah of Israel come and who would give incredible great wealth and who would worship him? There is only one group that fits that category. The group Epiphanius of Salamis preached in the fourth century that the wise men, those looking for spiritual truth, were descended from the sons of Keturah, descended from Abraham, and yet looking to a future hope of family reunification and restoration under the one offspring, the one seed, the one king that would reunite them all. And in the long, everlasting, unforgotten family ties and connections of the ancient Near East, the sons of Keturah, would know that the descendant of Isaac, the descendant of Jacob, the descendant of Judah, the descendant of David, the descendant of Mary, the promised offspring who would bless all peoples would be their cousin, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the sons of Keturah are reunited with their family. And in Jesus Christ, the wise sons of Keturah found their Savior. So it brings us to a final question. Why are they important? Why are the Magi, almost certainly the descendants of Abraham, important in the scope of redemptive history? Because they prove that God is faithful to his promises. They prove the faithfulness of God. How do we know that God is faithful? Because the other sons of Abraham find their place in the future kingdom of God as well. Let me prove this to you from prophecy. Psalm 72 Psalm 72 is a royal psalm written by King Solomon, the son of David. And it's a request for great blessing upon Solomon. 
But if you read Psalm 72, it becomes apparent very, very quickly that Solomon is looking beyond just himself and to a future king whose reign is far greater and far more vast. For example, Psalm 72, verses 8 and 9, may he, this is that king, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. That's worldwide dominion. That's not talking about just Solomon. In verse 10, Solomon prays, May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Who are the kings of Sheba? Sheba was the grandson of Abraham and Keturah, settling and forming the great nation of Sheba where? In Arabia. And Solomon prays in verse 11, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. And so in the future, the question is, will the Arabian tribes descended from Keturah and those descended from Ishmael, will they bring him gifts as Psalm 72 verse 10 predict? Well, the future glory of Israel, the future glory of Israel's messianic kingdom now reigning on earth, Christ reigning on earth in the millennial kingdom. This glorious future is described in Isaiah chapter 60. Listen to this hope. Isaiah 60, beginning in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And then the text gets specific about some peoples who will be coming to worship and give tribute to Messiah, King Jesus, when he is reigning on earth. Isaiah 60, beginning in verse 5, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. In other words, I will receive the worship of these who have come from afar. Who are these that are listed? A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian. That's Abraham's son through Keturah. And Ephah, that's Abraham's grandson, son of Midian, son of Keturah. All those from Sheba shall come. That's Abraham's grandson, son of Jokshan, son of Keturah. All the flocks of Kedar, that is the son of Ishmael, shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth, that's Ishmael's firstborn, shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. I skipped a little part in Isaiah 60, the part that says what gifts the sons of Keturah will bring. You want to make a bet? Just like once upon a time, they shall bring gold and frankincense. Why no myrrh? 
Myrrh is associated with the death of Christ in the New Testament, both as the anesthetic offered him at the cross and as a spice soaking the grave clothes of Christ. But now he ever lives. No more myrrh. In fact, myrrh is never again mentioned in the Bible in association with Jesus. His death is complete. He's been raised from the dead. Sin is completely paid for. He was the once for all sacrifice which satisfied the righteous anger of God against your sin. I said earlier, my goal for you was to see that a redeeming God is a God who always keeps his promises, who can always be trusted to save the elect, a God whom you can rely upon, whom you can trust. And through the wise men, men who were wise because they worshiped the true and living God in the person of Jesus Christ, we see the principle illustrated which Paul gives us in Galatians 3.29 And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The sons of Keturah came home briefly when they worshipped the Lord Jesus as a baby. They will come home again when they march into Jerusalem with their gifts once again, reunited with their father Abraham and with their savior and cousin, Jesus Christ. And you... If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, as the wise men did, you too will be faithfully brought home because God may be relied upon. He always does what he says he's going to do. Let us pray for a moment. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the joy and the delight of reading beginning in Genesis 1 this compilation of promises that you begin to put together and we simply can check them off one by one by one by one that you keep every promise in your word and so based on that confidence the promises yet to be kept that to be absent from the body is to be with the lord that when we die we will immediately see god that our sins have been forgiven and never again will, be, will they be named to us. That when we breathe our last and when our heart beats its final beat, you will grasp a hold of us and take us home. The promises already fulfilled in Scripture give us great confidence that the ones yet to be fulfilled will be true and that we can trust you with them. And now, Lord, as we continue worshiping by means of the Lord's table. It is our prayer that we would come into a time to remember that this glorious salvation offered to us came at a great cost. It was certainly free to us, but not free to you. It cost dearly the life of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we would come now to remember the body and blood of Christ. And we do pray in his name. Amen.